December 1982. This is the Player Missile Podcast, and I'm Rob, your host. Got a little procedural announcement here. I'm getting so much information on the 5200 that I'm going to split the 5200 episodes into even more episodes than I originally thought. At the rate it's going, I'm going to have two episodes for 1983 and at least one for 1984. And lest this be confused with the 5200 podcast, I am going to intersperse those 5200 episodes among some regular episodes. So the next three episodes are going to be covering December 1982. I'm going to split the magazines in two parts, and then I'm going to do a game review episode. And then we'll get back to another 5200 episode, probably the first half of 1983. And then I I will probably alternate 8-bit episodes and 5200 episodes until I get through all the 5200 stuff. So returning to our comfortable format where we're going to review some magazines here, let's start with Antic, subtitled The Atari Resource. For December 82 and January 83, Volume 1, Number 5, there's 112 pages in the issue, but there's no price marked on the cover. The sash on the corner says Buyer's Guide, and it's a you're looking at a inside of like an orange cabin, presumably at Santa's workshop, because there are five elves with their beards and pointy ears, red hats. They're sitting at a table, and you have a view across it looking out, sort of there's a window in the background with snow in the distance, and these five elves are working on what looks like a miniaturized robotic reindeer pulling a little miniaturized Santa sleigh. One of the elves has a joystick controller connected to a little kind of keyboard. Doesn't It's not really stylized as an Atari computer at all. It's just a keyboard with a joystick plugged into it. But all five elves look like they're smiling, and one of them has an Atari symbol that they're holding. But there's no other text on the cover at all. As we open the magazine, the inside front cover is an ad for Stratos, which is a game by Neil Larimer, who is the author of the Atari port of Rear Guard, which, heaven knows, I have trashed so many times on the podcast. But Stratos, and interestingly, it's it puts umlauts over the A. This is before Spinal Tap, so I suppose there uh, it's a non-ironic use of umlauts. But I'd never seen an ad for Stratos before, So, and the, of course, on you know 7-bit ASCII stuff, you don't get umlauts in the file names, so I never knew that it was supposed to have umlauts over it. Anyway, the ad is by Adventure International, and it says, From the Arcades of Tomorrow... A Microcomputer Experience for Today. Yeah, it says Atari version by Neil Larimer, TRS-80 version by John Camino. And it has screenshots of the Atari version, which is, you know, great looking. And I looked at that briefly in the Rear Guard episode. You know, it was a, a fine game. It, it played fast and well. Uh, the TRS-80 version is super blocky as a, you know, as a result of TRS-80 graphics. And there is an image. It's kind of like a you know, futuristic city with these sort of laser cannons visible. There's one in the foreground and presumably one in the background because it's on the game itself, you fire these laser cannons that are that shoot from either side of the screen, the left side and the right side, and your little targeting reticule, I guess, is positioned. Sort of the shots come from the outside, converge on the reticule, go up and then go out again, spread to the left and right side of the screen as you're attacking these aliens that, that descend from the top. So I hope karmically Neil Larimer is not mad at me for all the bad stuff I said about Rear Guard. You know, he wasn't responsible for the you know, marketing text, I imagine, that caused such a, a shift in expectation versus reality looking at rear guard. But Stratos, or I don't know, pronunciation-wise, Stratos, maybe? With the, if you're, if it's like German umlauts? Stratos is a, is a fine game and, and worth checking out. At the table of contents, there's a bunch of stuff that, and we'll, you know, we'll go through the whole magazine. The stuff that catches my eye is an article by Chris Crawford, Great Caesar's Ghost, says ruminations on real-time computer clashes. There's a holiday crossword, a puzzle generator product, it says. A joystick survey, a survey of computer art tools, in the departments, there's an assembly language department, String Search by Jerry White, that we'll look at. And I guess Jerry White must have learned assembly language, because I know in one of the interviews that we've encountered, he was writing most of his stuff in BASIC. And he said at some point he wanted to learn assembly language, so I guess he's starting to do that. 
There's another department, the fourth factory, that will do a drive-by marveling at how obtuse fourth is. And there's various, like, Christmas and holiday stuff that we'll look at. There's an ad from CBS Software sort of introducing that they've taken over publishing of all the K-Byte software. It shows K-Razy Shootout, K-Razy Antics, K-Razy Critters, and K-Star Patrol. There's an ad from Atari. It says, the future is here. Games for game's sake, Atari's search for tomorrow's software stars. And this is an ad essentially asking for resumes for the Atari Games Design Research Group. It says, headed by the creator of Eastern Front and Tanktics, obviously Chris Crawford, its sole purpose is to pursue the art of game design and create the finest possible computer games. It says, working with us, you'll have total creative freedom. You design the best possible games you can, nothing more and definitely nothing less. This is obviously freedom like that must be earned. You have to prove yourself capable of handling it. You have to have the technical talent so that programming for you is what typing is to a novelist. So it says, right to Atari, Human Resources Department, uh, P.O. Box 427-1349, Moffett Park Drive, Sunnyvale, California, 94086. We are an equal opportunity employer, MFHV. MFDV is Male Female Disabled Veteran, which is sometimes put at the end of job postings today. I wonder if MFHV is Male Female Handicapped Veteran. You know, the language of the day was handicapped versus disabled. And at the end of the ad, it says, Atari, discover how far you can go. That's interesting. I don't think I've seen that ad before, where they're like directly reaching out for positions in Chris Crawford's group. And interestingly, the next article on the facing page is by Chris Crawford. It's Great Caesar's Host. It is a discussion of Legionnaire, his latest game. So he writes in the first person saying he also wrote a game called Eastern Front, published by APX, that was strategically more complex, but similar in many respects to Legionnaire. And since Antic asked me to write a bit about game design, I thought these two efforts could serve as useful examples. He talks a little bit about Eastern Front, how it's the Germans versus the Russians on a big scrolling map. Similar to Legionnaire in that respect, that it's a scrolling map, but it differs in that Legionnaire is a real-time game, where Eastern Front is a turn-based game. He says, thus you have plenty of time to think over your moves in Eastern Front, but Legionnaire does not give you this luxury. The pace is slow enough to give you some time to plan your move, but not so slow that you can relax. He says because there's not as much time to sort of plan your stuff, that he says Legionnaire is a less cognitive game than Eastern Front. But he also says, I think it's a fundamentally a more exciting game. However, it's not as meaty a game, and wargamers may feel it doesn't have enough strategic subtlety. He goes on to describe the map in Legionnaire as being a smaller playfield, where instead of uh, Eastern Front being thousands of square miles, he says we have perhaps a hundred. And also different about Legionnaire is that it uses sort of terrain. It's basically a contour map, and the, the hills affect the movement of the player and the enemy. In Legionnaire, you play as Caesar, giving orders using the joystick and pressing the start button as it happened in Eastern Front. So the graphics of Legionnaire are slightly better. Units are displayed more imaginatively and with color and animation to show which units are moving where during the turn. He says it's safe to say that Legionnaire goes beyond Eastern Front in its use of the technical capabilities of the Atari computer. And the article is kind of written in the style of he asks an imagined question and then answers it. And so why is the game based on Romans and Barbarians? is the question. And he said, it's simple because the artificial intelligence that is required to have a computer opponent is tough to design, especially for a real-time game. And he said, because he didn't have that much time, the algorithms have to be pretty stupid. So stupid algorithms imply stupid opponents. In all of military history, how many situations arose in which one opponent was generally recognized to be pretty stupid? Not just wrong-headed, misinformed, gutless, or foolhardy, but deeply and genuinely dumb? Not many. Romans and barbarians were the closest approximation I could find. He says, even this scenario isn't quite fair to the barbarians, but fortunately, few barbarians buy software. And then a question, how long did it take to program? 
And he said, that's hard to answer. He said, the first version was written on the pet back in March of 79. He said, it sold fewer than 100 copies. And then Rob Zadibble of Atari saw the game, liked it, and he said, put together a simplified version for the Atari 800. And this game was subsequently released by APX as the game Centurion. Subsequently to that, he joined Atari and attempted to interest the company in war games, but to no avail. So in June 1980, it says he signed a contract with Avalon Hill, giving them the rights to Tanktix and Legionnaire. And by September 81, he had finished work on Eastern Front that we went over back in episode 8 of the podcast. And then we also had that detailed post-mortem he wrote up in the Creative Computing in the Deluxe Invaders episode, episode 26 of this podcast. Anyway, he says Avalon Hill, he said, was impressed with Eastern Front and wanted something like it. And he promised to get to work on an adaptation of Legionnaire for them. So they spent three months solving some of the fundamental problems with the game, then began serious programming work in January of 1982. I delivered the game to Avalon Hill in late February. Polishing required three more months. The final version was delivered in June of 1982. Question, what were the hardest parts of the effort? He says, undoubtedly, the most difficult part was the reconciliation of scrolling with the real-time nature of the game. With an oversized scrolling map, it's quite possible for the player to be looking at the wrong sector when some crucial event happens elsewhere. So because it's real-time, you can't just like stop the action to let the player look somewhere else. So he says he solved it with a variety of schemes. The first... I kept the overall unit count low to reduce the chances that the player would have units scattered all over the map. Second, I added sounds. A marching sound tells a player that some unit is moving, and a very distinctive combat sound warns him of a battle somewhere on the map. Third, I designed the combat system to encourage the player to keep his units bunched together where they could all be seen at once. And I'll extend the benefit of the doubt that he's not trying to exclude people who don't identify as male from playing this game but rather in kind of thoughtless 80s style, just using it as a generic pronoun, given all the circumstances and gatekeeping and whatever that caused this hobby of ours to have a male-dominated and even misogynistic history at times. I would just substitute they as a pronoun when I encounter stuff like this, but I also don't want to give them undue credit. So, I don't know. I guess I'll just call the stuff out as I see it. Anyway, he says he thinks he was successful, but that that problem, which kept me awake at night during the design phase, is rarely mentioned by people who play the game. So I guess it was successful then. So another big problem arose from the real-time nature of the game. So the player's input is processed during the vertical blank, while the units are moved during the mainline execution. With Eastern Front, it was quite possible to keep the two processes separated so they would never interfere with each other, but with Legionnaire, it was far more difficult. For example, what if the mainline routine wants to move a unit that the player has picked up and is holding? Does it rudely jerk the unit out of the player's hands and move it, or does it politely wait, hanging up the game while the yokel stares at his unit? I sense some frustration there. He said, I eventually devised a scheme that resolved the dilemma, but it cost me several tufts of hair. Yeah, as a software writer, I'm continually amazed at how I think the program is going to be used, and then I give it to somebody else, and it's like they're discovering stuff that I never would have thought of. And so that's the value of testing. Next question, what was the easiest part of the effort? He said, working with the Atari Macro Assembler, a magnificent piece of software. Says he programmed Eastern Front with the Atari Assembler Editor cartridge, and wow, that was quite the challenge. He said he only wished he had access to Jim Dunyon's DDT debugger then. But he must have used it since, because he says the combination of the macro assembler, DDT, a RAM disk, and a good printer makes assembly language development a very smooth process. Penultimate question, if I had to do it over again, what would I change? He says very little. I find the game plays very smoothly and well. He does say he wish he could have added some better sounds, perhaps. And he says he has a vague feeling that Legionnaire doesn't have quite the staying power Eastern Front has, but I can't put my finger on the problem. It could be Legionnaire with only 10 Roman units maximum, just can't have it match the sweep and scale of Eastern Front, but he says he doesn't know. 
And finally, will it sell? He says, I think so. Biggest marketing problem with the original Eastern Front was it's too cerebral, too strategic in nature. Those not used to war games have difficulty adjusting, but Legionnaire doesn't have this problem. It's much easier for a beginner to understand and much more exciting to play than Eastern Front. But there's no way to be sure, only time and the customers will tell. And my opinion about Legionnaire versus Eastern Front is the graphics on Legionnaire with the sort of the contour markings aren't quite as appealing as the sort of the terrain styling of the Eastern Front graphics. The caveat being I've never played Legionnaire, but back then, if I had a choice of playing Legionnaire versus Eastern Front, I think I would pick Eastern Front because of the graphics. So perhaps that is a you know a legitimate factor in the sales of Legionnaire versus Eastern Front. Next, there's a little Atari tree program by Jerry White. It's a little Christmas tree that plays Jingle Bells, a basic program. It's about two pages worth of basic, lots of data statements, I think, for all the music. But he says it's a four-part harmony, displaying the lyrics as well. And he says there's no machine language, it's Atari basic only. There's a little article called The Model Station by Robert DeWitt. It's about a word processing station. So it has a whole bunch of stuff for like a serious word processor, like the FullView 80 board, LetterPerfect, a Daisy Writer printer for letter quality, i.e. slow printing. Essentially what they did is they put together this system as an example of a word processing station, and they said they used it to type up this and several art- other articles in this issue. In conclusion, they said they're finding it essentially satisfactory. As with any computer situation, it has its limitations and idiosyncrasies, but we think it will function just fine. Holiday Crossword by Beth Kaplan is actual an actual crossword puzzle that's laid out here in the magazine. It has down clues and across clues as a bunch of Christmassy-themed things. The grid is the example output from the program Crossword Magic by CompuWare. There's the starting line column by James Caparell. This is help for the new user and it has a bunch of questions like how long a line will basic accept? And what is MemoPad? Why does my screen change colors when I leave it on for a while? So, you know, answers for somebody who's just maybe getting an Atari computer for the first time. There's a music playing program, Oh Holy Night by W.E. Parker that plays the song. It's just a basic program with a bunch of data statements. It's probably 80 lines or so, but the data statements like wrap around the 40-column screen, so they're like quite long lines if you were going to actually type this in. Here's an article, Joystick Survey Alternatives to the Atari Controller by Dave Plotkin. There have been similar joystick review articles in uh, Creative Computing before, but unlike that one, this one does not have any pictures of any of the sticks themselves. It just has a big table and some text going along with each one, but the table lists the manufacturer, the price, whether it's a handheld or tabletop model, and then where the firing button is. There's no real recommendation. They kind of give, you know, their opinion of what the stick is used for, like saying the Pointmaster joystick by the company Diskwasher only has a fire button at the top of the handle, and they said that's fine for games like Star Raiders and stuff, but they say for Seamus, games that require fast, independent movement of the stick and the fire button, this joystick is not the best, in their opinion. So the sticks they list are the Atari joystick, there's the Big Stick by Bayless. That's $40. It's about the most expensive joystick. The stick is also here. That's another $40 stick. And there's the Wicco Command Control, the Newport Pro Stick, the Zircon Video Command, and then they also have the Wicco Trackball, which, though technically not a joystick, can function as one. But to be fair, it did say alternatives to the Atari controller. Although, on the other hand, it did say joystick survey. So, hmm. And what looks to be like a new column called Dragon Smoke, there's an article called Wordsworth by George Firedrake and Bob Albrecht. At the bottom, it says Bob Albrecht is the author of the book Atari Basic that accompanies the basic cartridge. And it says George Firedrake is a dragon. And there's a picture of a dragon on the top with the smoke coming out of its nostrils, a yellow bird on its back, and holding a skewer of cooked tofu. 
The opening says, Dragon Smoke poses problems for you to ponder, questions for you to answer, programs for you to write, and whatever other mischief we might cunningly contrive. As time goes on, and as issue follows issue, we will solve some of the problems we create. Better yet, you will solve them. So this one seems to be an introduction to ASCII, where it says the ASCII code for A is 65, for B is 66, for C is 67, and so guess what the ASCII code is for D, and guess what is the ASCII code for Z. And then it shows how to print ASCII codes using Atari Basic. And then later on, it has a, a chart. It says words worth number one, and it assigns a number to each letter of the alphabet. But this time it goes A equals one, B equals two, you know, and all the way through Z equals 26. And then it has some questions to answer. For example, it says, how many three-letter words have a word's worth less than 100? It says, try this with dictionary in hand. And it has like nine other questions that you can try to do. And then it has a programming question for you. It says, write a program to accept a word, which says any string, then compute the word's worth number one using all the letters in the string, throw away anything not a letter, and then print out the value. This is next time we will show you our word's worth number one program, and we will also tell you about word's worth number two. So yeah, it looks like a repeating column, and we found the introductory uh, entry. Next we have String Search by Jerry White. This is an assembly language column. It opens, while developing commercial software, I've often wished I could make a faster string search in an Atari Basic program. He said if I used Basic A+, the find command would do the trick, but I needed to use Atari Basic, and the only alternative was to write an assembler routine to do the job. And so he presents a heavily commented assembly language code that takes parameters from Atari Basic, searches through the string, and finds if there's a match or not. And it has a little basic program that pokes in all the data and has an example where you can run this. It's not entirely general purpose because it assumes you're looking for a match in groups of eight character strings. He said if you need to change this, you change a value in one of the data statement entries, actually in two locations, because there's a compare for the end of the loop and then there's a add to join to go to the next record. So maybe in future installments he will make this more general. There's a section on Atari Pilot, Holiday Trees by Ken Harms. It's a Big old pilot program to draw some trees, apparently. There's an article, Graphics, that's G-R-A-F-I-X, by Tim McGinnis. That's an overview of some graphics generation stuff. Included is a uh, digitizing tablet, the VersaWriter. It's described as an articulated arm mounted on a plastic tablet that you sort of point and, I guess, click on stuff somehow, and it digitizes it into graphics mode 8. So it's a product that was somewhat out of the normal consumer price range at $300. He writes of a character set editor called The Next Step, a program called Graphics Generator, which is another character set en- editor with special features, it says, defining up to five different character sets at one time and to create character matrices. This is allowing up to 26 matrices of up to 32 characters each. Something called Graphics Composer, which has a, is a drawing program with a bunch of geometric style drawing utilities, it says, circle squares, rectangles, polygons, triangles, arcs, and moiré patterns. Also included is a player editor. Graphics Master is a Graphics 8 drawing program. And Micropainter is a Graphics 7 Plus drawing program. And at the end of the article, he has some like examples of how we would use each of these things and includes some basic listings about how to load some files that are generated by some of these programs. Next, we come to the impenetrable and opaque fourth factory. It's titled Definers by Bob Gonzalez, And I have no idea what's going on. Next, in the education section, there's an article, Candle, Candle, Burning Bright by Linda Schreiber. And this is a science simulation on the computer. It simulates a candle, a lit candle with a jar over it, and then as you lower the jar, eventually the air, the oxygen, will be consumed and the candle will go out. 
But she said, this is a way for young children to experiment safely. The candle can be a, attempt to be lighted using the select key, and to lower or raise the jar, use the start key. It says the program uses player missile graphics for the jar, candle, and the flame. And it says lines 50 and 60 contain the machine language to move the jar player up and down. It also has a list of the variables used in the program. It's about 80 lines worth of basic. At the end of the article, it says Linda Schreiber is president and co-owner of Thesis, one of the first firms developing software for the Atari. Her book on programming the Atari computer will be published soon by Tab Books. And she is vice president of Semco, Detroit's oldest computer club, and a member of MACE, one of the fastest growing Atari users groups. Kay interviewed her back in 2017 uh, in the Antic podcast feed, and so I'll include a link in the show notes to that interview. In the public domain, we have a game called Bats by Stan Ockers. It's about 150 lines of basic. Looks like it was first published in part of the Atari Club newsletter of Eugene, Oregon. It's a bit like a flappy bird kind of thing, except there's no scrolling. You're a bat and you fly through this little cave of stalactites and stalagmites. And as you progress, the sort of the distance between those gets shorter. There are insects that sort of fly from the right to the left, and you're going from the left to the right, sort of more slowly. And you collect the little dots, the insects that are not the color of your bat, and you avoid the one poisonous insect that is the color of your bat. There's a little machine language routine that moves the missiles that are used for the insects from right to left. But otherwise, it's an example of a you know nice little basic game. Simple game, but nice. Back in the holiday theme, there's the Christmas Mailing Lister by Bill Lukeroth. This is a cassette-based program that allows you to store up to 140 addresses, it says. You can create, change, or delete addresses at any time. So you can also print out on labels if you have that kind of, I imagine, tractor feed labels. I'm sure they had those back then, right? It's upwards of 200 lines of Atari Basic, but unlike most of the other listings in this issue, it doesn't have the typo table, which is their checksum system to try to catch errors in, their, in your basic typing. The remaining pages in the magazine are really dominated by the buyer's guides. There's product reviews of software and hardware, there's book reviews, and then there's a section of new product announcements. In the product review section, they have software like Big Math Attack. This is by Thesis that Linda Schreiber was a part of. Some new software they mentioned is Frogger, Seamus, Pac-Man for games, CineAssembler for utility programs. There's the Mosaic Adapter that allows you to take two 16K boards out of your 800 or 400 and replace them, take the chips out and place them on one board so you open up a slot in your, in your computer. There's the Side Writer keyboard, which is a full stroke. It looks like a full Atari 800 keyboard that's in a separate um, unit and then hardwired into the back of a 400. So you get, end up getting this like six foot cable with an extra keyboard that you can use a touch typing on your 400. It includes a strong review of Attack at EPCYG4 saying things like verbal description can really cannot do this game justice. It's really unique qualities, the ship's motion, and the cooperative two-player mode mark its programmers as truly visionary game designers. And here's where it gets interesting. It says, unfortunately, they don't receive any credit on the game's rather elegant packaging. But the title screen that I see when I bring it up shows the author, Mike Edwards, clearly right there on the title screen. So I don't know if the review copy was something, you know, like an early version that hasn't been archived or what, but his name is clearly there, at least on the stuff that's archived that I've been able to see. There's a review of CineAssembler saying it's a professional development tool for the experienced programmer as well as the beginner. As an excellent editor, a very fast assembler, capable of programs of virtually unlimited size, and a monitor that should serve well to find the trickiest of bugs. And after reviews of Choplifter and Preppy is a review of Soft Porn Adventure from Online Systems, which seems to be mostly a gambling game. You have to make money at the casino, and the objective is to seduce three attractive ladies. So I guess you're out of luck with this game if you don't find ladies attractive. 
I wonder how hard it would have been in a text adventure with a two-word parser to just select the type of person you were interested in at the beginning of the game, and then, you know, bam, you've doubled your potential audience. Even Strip Poker had a data disk where you could select to see which type of person you were interested in seeing sans clothes. And they get into reviews of some utilities, Master Type, which is a typing, touch typing program, and then Speed Read Plus from Optimized System Software that attempts to up your reading speed by allowing your Atari computer to function like an electric, and I'm going to try to figure out how to pronounce this in real time, tachistoscope, which is apparently a device for displaying words and phrases at various speeds. We've talked about speed reading before, and if you think this is a way to make you like able to speed read and also tell that you've got two interleave stories, then yeah, give it a try. There's three book reviews. One is Games for the Atari by Elcomp. Is a bunch of basic games. It says several important and perplexing areas are covered, including player missile graphics, the joystick, display list interrupts, character set, and CTIA versus GTIA programming. There's also a review of the Visicalc Home and Office Companion. It's an Osborne McGraw-Hill book. It's reviewed by Paul Hoffman. It's he's, he's pretty funny. He says one of the few big name programs available for Atari is Visicalc. Some of us ran out and bought it based on the articles in computer magazines saying home finance, business planning, not just a game. And we're sorely disappointed when we realized the spreadsheets we wanted to make did not just fly from our fingertips. And we had a $150 dinosaur on our hands. He says the book contains 50 pre-programmed real-world examples of what VisiCalc is good for. However, he says it seems to me the program still won't do all that much. And that five $30 games would have gotten much more use from me than VisiCalc ever will. He says it's also interesting to note that Atari is not even listed in the book among the computers that support VisiCalc. He concludes saying, essentially, that if you haven't bought VisiCalc, look through the book and see if this has anything useful in it. Otherwise, if you don't see anything in the book that's going to be useful, then don't even buy VisiCalc, because it's not going to be worth it. And the final book review is Compute's Second Book of Atari, which it says is an excellent compilation, extremely informative reading for any computer owner, and a must for owners of the Atari. It highlights the... What it says is the star of the graphics section, a 75-page three-part article by Phil Dunn entitled Extending Atari High-Resolution Graphics. It says it includes eight separate listings of programs that will let you draw polygons, create textured graphics, and use multicolored graphics in mode 8. also highlights other stuff like David Plotkin's article TextPlot Makes a Game, using the machine language subroutine TextPlot to create a basic multicolor action game called Paratroop Attack. It says material ranges in difficulty from beginner to advanced, and it's spiral-bound so pages stay open easily. In the new products announcement section, we have Minor 2049er, and there was an ad for Minor 2049er earlier in the magazine. Forgot to mention that. There's the first I've seen of a 1200 baud modem, the, the Hayes 1200 smart modem from uh, $699, it says. And also here in the new products listing is Legionnaire from Avalon Hill. This is Chris Crawford's game that we just talked about earlier. And finally, here at the back of the magazine, we have an ad from Rockland Software with Wizard of War, Deluxe Invaders, and Gorf. And Broderbund, there's Master Type that was just called out in the new product section. Fernando Herrera's Astro Chase from First Star Software. And on the back cover is Ultima 1. Ultima comes to the Atari from Sierra Online, Inc. Next in the magazines is Compute, the leading magazine of home, educational, and recreational computing. It's the December 1982 issue. It's volume 4, number 12, issue number 31. Two bucks fifty on the cover price, one pound eighty-five in the UK. And a lot of bang for your buck or pound because there's 298 pages in this issue. And above the title it says, How to Select Your First Home Computer. In italicized text below the compute title is Special Home Applications Issue. But when I think home applications, I sort of think like, you know, word processing spreadsheets or as was the 
kind of the bent of the time. It's like, how can you get your computer in the kitchen so you can have recipes on it? But all that, the rest of the text on the cover page here doesn't seem to go along with it very much. The one thing that does, it says computers in the home, colon, 1990. So this is always fun to see what predictions turn out to be. It says simulator, a modeling planner for Apple, Atari, and Vic. Hidden Maze, a game program for Apple, Pet, Vic, and Atari. A sprite ed- editor for the Commodore 64. Er, again, I don't want to see how it, easy it is to move your 24 by 21 sprites, Commodore people. We have arbitrarily tall sprites, and we like it. And the text finishes up sorts and basic for the TI-994A, the color computer, Vic, and Apple. So why am I even reading that? And then a universal program lister for Pet and Vic. Why am I reading that? The remainder of the page is the image of a... A woman in what appears to be her kitchen with, looks like, a microwave in the background behind her with a little text, a speech bubble coming out saying, your advanced physics class is on the screen in the communications room. And then little smaller images, there's like a green 3D maze, I guess referencing the hitting maze game. There's a pencil erasing a little Tinkerbell looking character, maybe that references the sprite editor. And something on the bottom, it's there's the three little mini figures holding up cards that says, I heart R, and I have no idea what that means. And then finally at the bottom, it says plus applications and games ready to type into your computer. And then product reviews for Apple, Vic, Atari, Color Computer, and more. Turning to the table of contents, the features section at the top has all the stuff that was highlighted on the cover page. You know, computers in the home, how compute readers use their computers, and how to select your first home computer. The Atari stuff called out in the education and recreation section. There's an Atari for Christmas Part 2, which we covered the Part 1 in the November 82 episode. Looks like there's a logo article that references the Atari. It says making the turtle count. So, but we probably won't cover that. In the review section, there's the Epson Graph Tracks 80, it says. So we'll find out what that is. In the columns and departments section, there's the inside Atari, but that's the only Atari specific thing. And then the journal section, which is where they have all their programs. We have Renumber, that's Atari specific. We have Text Plot 2. We have Atari Peak and Poke alternatives. The Atari Moving Message Utility. Speed Limit for your Atari and a graphics plot for the Epson MX80 printer. And lots of random stuff for other boring computers, so expect a fair amount of skipping. In the editor's notes section by Robert Locke, publisher slash editor-in-chief, they reference that it seems that IBM is preparing a $500 entry-level computer. It's it's supposed to have full-color and graphics capability, as well as the ability to be upgraded to run IBM PC stuff. And, I don't know, is this the first rumor of the PC Junior? I don't recall if the PC Junior was fully PC compatible or was uh, able to be made to be so. So, pause. And so, no, it was not exactly compatible. I looked up some stuff. It was partially compatible, but apparently incompatible enough that software had to essentially be rewritten for the PC Junior. It wasn't released until March of 1984, but it was announced in November of 83, which is still quite a ways away from here, you know, December 82. But there were rumors of this product codenamed Peanut that IBM was developing that would repeat the PC's success in the more home market. It was rumored to cost well under $1,000, and most of the media predicted that the PC Junior would become the dominant both home computer and sort of game-playing computer. That was until it got closer to the release date of the PC Junior when actual review units were tested and had that chiclet keyboard. with It was like an IR interface that apparently was very flaky. It was more expensive than people anticipated, and the lack of any way to actually have full PC compatibility doomed it, really, because it only lasted about a year. It did succeed in knocking TI out of the PC business because a few days before IBM officially announced the PC Junior, Texas Instruments stopped selling its 994A due to losing hundreds of millions of dollars 
in their price war against Commodore, and then hearing this new competitor was going to come in that everybody predicted was going to take over and become the dominant system, that apparently was enough for TI, and they bailed. Compute says that their impression is that IBM has had a successful taste of the PC market, but they're anxious to move into the home computer market now. They report that the Commodore 64 is shipping 10 to 12,000 units in its first two weeks of production, said the production line recently slowed down for some apparent ROM upgrades and other cosmetic fixes. It says we hear that several hundred of the very first ones were involved in a recall to fix a firmware bug. And cue the Darth Vader music. Sources indicate the 64 is now backlogged to the tune of tens of thousands of units, and production won't be close to demand until capacity is drastically increased in early 83. Then it says the Commodore Max machine, originally scheduled for a fall introduction, will be released in early spring, price for which will be revised from the original $180 or so to the low 100s. This change obviously reflects the fact that since the announcement of the Max, the price of the VIC-20 has plunged from $300 to the level originally intended for the Max. The editor's notes section is closed out by tooting their own horn, they said. You'll recall that our October issue, a scant two months ago, broke the magic 100,000 press run barrier. Not only did we break it, we literally crashed through it. For purposes of dealer reorders, we had to declare the October issue sold out on October 4th. November press run bumped up to 118,000, and this issue hits the 130,000 mark. And optimistically, they say, 500,000, here we come! A recent survey of our new subscribers indicated that 87% of you have one or more friends you expect to purchase their first personal computers within six months. Introduce them to compute while you're at it. Next, we get to the Computers in the Home 1990 article by Tom Halfhill, Features Editor. I haven't read it yet. I'm doing a live read here, so I'm betting. I think we're going to be talking about computers in kitchens, looking up recipes. All right, let's see if I'm right. It starts off referencing the Jetsons TV show, but says, don't hold your breath. I guess the article's not going to be about sprockets, but it is going to be about computers revolutionizing how you live in your home. They talk about this architect, Roy Mason, building a home dubbed Xanadu outside of Orlando, Florida, saying it will open as a tourist attraction for people visiting the nearby Disney World and Epcot Center. And can I call it or what? Nine paragraphs in, we get to the computers in the kitchen. Although, to be fair, it's more than just looking up recipes, planning well-balanced meals, it says. And the auto chef can even move food from the refrigerator to the microwave oven. Computers keep track of grocery inventory so you know what to shop. And it can even adjust the lighting and, like, mood music to match your meal. So this is a long article. It's six pages of text across 13 pages in the magazine. So it's quite dense. Definitely gets a few things, right? Well, of course, this says 1990. Of course, some of this stuff is not happening, you know, until now. It talks about teleshopping. Of course, they haven't really imagined the internet, so they talk about how a video disk system is going to be hooked up to the computers. But they talk about telebanking and how computers can be used for home automation, you know, like turning on lights and managing the air conditioning and temperature controls. There's several problems with this. Uh, one of them is just the price that they say people would rather spend money, because this is quite expensive, certainly at the time. People would rather spend money for, you know, extra addition on the garage or, you know, whatever higher quality stuff, that there's resistance to people of who are unaccustomed to delegating tasks to computers. Another problem is that the current machines can't handle multitasking, which they define here as running more than one program simultaneously and independently. As microchip technology advances, tomorrow's home computers may have the capability to play video games or balance the checkbook while monitoring the furnace. But as we heard from Chris Crawford just in this you know, episode here today earlier in, in Antic, he had enough problems with his real-time system just trying to move a few little things around on a screen. Handling real-time input for a house where stuff has to be you know, foolproof and fail-safe is a much different story. The article kind of expands its focus a little bit and talks about some of the te technology that will sort of come along as this home automation continues. They mention cameras powered by 
charge-coupled devices, CCDs, electronic circuits sensitive to light. And they say Sony's developing one, and currently it has an expected cost of around $800. It uses a built-in floppy to store images. Said that it's a steep price now, but remember it was only a few years ago that the least expensive home computers cost that much. Article talks a little bit about digital music, and it says a digital audio disc was introduced in Japan this fall by Pioneer Electronics and may be introduced in the U.S. as early as next year. And it was... Hi, kitty. Those first CD players were upwards of $1,000, and not super common for a while. What is becoming more common is the use of computer chips in cars. Says the manufacturers are using them to, for instance, regulate fuel flow and ignition systems, computerizing the instrument panels, diagnosing problems, and jazzing up accessories. As an example, the 1983 Thunderbird will use a computerized voice synthesis to speak with a three-sentence vocabulary. And unfortunately, I couldn't find an actual recording of what it sounded like, but this is what they say. Your key is in the ignition. Your headlights are on. And door is ajar. They even talked to an executive here, Robert Haas, a technical planning manager for Ford, says, By 1985 to 1990, virtually every car in the world will have at least one microprocessor. Our Continental today already has four or five microprocessors. He says the microchips will make possible the personalized car, saying, you know, who's going to drive it to adjust the settings of the mirrors and seats. And it'll program itself for your favorite radio stations. He says in a few years, dashboards may incorporate CRTs or flat panel LCD screens for readouts. And tomorrow's roadmaps might even be in the form of computer graphics stored on floppy disks and displayed on the screen. He says, of course, you would have to have the possibility of bringing up maps of increasingly fine detail. You have one map showing all of Michigan, another one just Detroit, and another showing maybe just one quadrant of Detroit. So maybe like a zoom feature, perhaps? It might even be possible to predefine your route by moving a cursor over the screen map. And then, like any good backseat driver, the car could alert you to wrong turns. Hey, dummy, you should have hung a left on Elm Street. Sometimes that's what I envision when Google Maps person has the sort of passive-aggressive recalculating thing on the display. Then Haas continues, another thing you might see in the next few years is sonar devices to detect if you're backing up over your kid's tricycle or whatever. 10 or 15 years down the road, the sky's the limit. You can envision radar systems, sonar, infrared, heads-up displays, even speech recognition. And he says acceptance of collision warning devices seems likely, but he expects resistance to any type of automatic collision avoidance system. So take that Tesla autopilot, you're never going to get accepted. Honestly, though, this article was, yeah, they had a lot of things, right? They had a, you know, it's a lot of sort of incremental improvements that were sort of easy to visualize. You know, they missed the big leaps like the internet, but they got some, especially for the cars, a lot of the stuff was just like logical, small steps that were, that could be built upon. Here's the article, How Compute Readers Use Their Computers, again by Tom Halfhill. It says, Compute sampled its subscribers to find out why people buy home computers and what they do with them. It says they pulled names at random from their subscriber list and contacted the readers. It says, Living all over the hemisphere from British Columbia to Puerto Rico, from Maine to Southern California. Talked to all ages, parents, single adults, youngsters, retirees. Said all of them were happy with their computers. And in many households, the computer was rivaling the the TV set as the most heavily used home appliance. Said few of the uses we turned up were particularly unusual and generally fell into three main areas, education, entertainment, and efficiency. Education and entertainment, kind of obvious, but efficiency, it said, included everything from computing uh, personal finances to using the computer as a tool at work. They said regardless what their primary category was, most users typically use the computer for at least to some extent in all three of the areas. Even the most serious user admitted to using it to play, you know, games now and then. But it said overall entertainment and education were the most predominant applications. I said not everyone agreed that the computer age has arrived, but one thing is never doubted. If it's not already here, it's coming, and our children had better be prepared for it. 
said that was alone reason enough for many parents to acquire a home computer. And they probably have quotes from about 20 families at least. And a fair number have Atari computers, and so I'll list the names of the people that have Ataris, and I'm just not going to name the people that don't have Ataris. So the Miller family of Martinez, Georgia, they have a 400. Said their kids play Canyon Climber Goldmine. They wanted something to keep the kids out of the arcades. But because the kids were using it so much, they bought an 800 for the parents so the kids could have the 400. So that's a good use of Atari computers right there. The Leeser family of Orangevale, California bought an 800. And they have three children, and they said they may follow the example of the Millers and get another computer just for them. The Orr family of Pineville, Louisiana bought an 800 with the hopes it'll help their young son learn on it. You know, programs like My First Alphabet. And meanwhile, they play games and they try to catalog their 1,000-album record collection. Proving you don't have to have kids to buy a computer, John Swisher, an Atari 400 owner from Bay Village, Ohio, uses the 400 to track his running times. And Charles Magruder of Jackson, Mississippi, bought a Atari 800 initially to play games, but then started using it to catalog his foreign coin collection. In addition, he said he wrote a program indexing all the Atari articles in Compute since February 1981, which I'm sure played no part in his inclusion in this article. This is Everett Davis of Beaumont, Texas, bought an 800 because he worked with computers at work and wanted one at home. His family started using it, and then he said his many of our friends are interested in buying a computer too. The only question is which one? That's the big debate, and that's the easiest debate ever. Buy an Atari debate over. Some of the people, like Bob Federer of Toronto, Ontario, who has a 400 with 48K, use the machines for their work. He has a recording studio, and occasionally it says he designs sounds and rhythms on his Atari to bring him into work. And rounding out the Atari owners is Carol Klisner of Forest Hills, New York, who not only has an Atari, but has an Apple II, a TRS-80 Coco, and a Monroe computer. The only Monroe computer I could find was the amazingly named Monrobot, which, according to Wikipedia, was an inexpensive, relatively slow, general-purpose computer introduced in 1960. And there's a picture of it, and it looks like, you know, something out of a 1960s science fiction movie with, like, reel-to-reel tapes and embedded in this desk with a typewriter thing on top. That would be amazing to have as a centerpiece to your house. So that's it for that article. If you happen to be named in that article, but I didn't read your name, I apologize, but you should have gotten an Atari. The article, How to Select Your First Home Computer, isn't listed as an author. It said it's excerpted from the Beginner's Guide to Buying a Personal Computer from Compute Books. It's like essentially starts from nothing. It assumes you don't know much terminology, so it goes over everything, you know, memory. It talks about RAM versus ROM, how much memory you might need, what kind of display you might need, color or monochrome, and then the size of display. 40 or 80 columns, or, you know, less if you're looking at a VIC-20. It talk, even talks about character sizes and the matrix used for characters. It says common character sizes are 5x7, 7x9, and 8x8. It talks about lowercase letters having descenders or not, and if that's important to you. Number of lines on the screen may be important, depending on how or what you're going to be working with primarily. It said common line numbers are 1 for handheld computers, 16, 24, and 25. It gets into a bit about keyboards. It says, don't underestimate the importance of a keyboard. Like, yeah, I don't think you're going to be typing a novel on an Atari 400. It doesn't say that, but that's, you know, just the editorial opinion of the Player Missile Podcast. They say membrane keyboards are useful because they're rugged and they're easy to clean up and can be a wise choice for children. You know, all the keyboard layouts are different at this point, and it says to, you know, kind of be aware of that. Like, some have keypads on the side, some don't. Some group the arithmetic operators together. Some have keys that you don't want to hit accidentally, like reset. If you're a touch typist, they say watch out for a few things, key bounce and key rollover. So rollover, they say, is the ability for the keyboard to distinguish between very quick keystrokes and to keep the order correct. So without rollover, touch typists would have a terrible time with getting characters out of order or lost altogether. You want rollover, it says. You don't want bounce. 
And it says bounces is multiple entry of a character when only one character was desired. They said it's caused by the microscopic bouncing of the contacts during a keystroke. said all mechanical key switches have some sort of bounce, but most have circuitry to try to eliminate it. So essentially just try out the keyboard before you buy it. It gets into a larger section about graphics, and this, I think, is sort of the bitmap graphics area. And they don't really come out and say it, but they kind of are saying how important are games to you. So if you're looking for high resolution and lots of colors, that may have a different, it may direct you to different computers than if you're just interested in text processing. There's a few paragraphs about software peripherals and storage devices, essentially just saying, kind of do your research, see what's available for the computers that you're considering, but it has no real special recommendations. And at the end of the article, it has a big chart listing all the sort of the computers that they are considering here as uh, possibilities for you. List the Apple II, the Atari 400, Atari 800, the C64, the Pet, the Super Pet, and interestingly it has the Commodore Max. And it lists the VIC-20, the Exidy Sorcerer, the HP-85A, which, what the heck is that, is a toner cartridge, currently. Probably not back then. Apparently the HP Model 85 is a like a little all-in-one kind of TRS-80 style computer, but a small 5-inch monitor using a custom HP 8-bit processor. And I haven't really run across this one before. It's interesting. I'll include a link in ye old show notes about it. Continuing with the list is the IBM PC, then the Mattel a television is listed, presumably uh, regarding the keyboard component that was never actually released. And there's the NEC PC8001A, the Osborne 1, the Panasonic handheld computer, the Coco and the Radio Shack pocket computer, then the TRS-80 Model 3, the Sinclair ZX81 slash Timex TS-1000, the TI-994A, the Xerox 820, and the Zenith Z89. It lists the stats of all those, you know, the, the RAM standard, expandable 2, uh, how you can expand the ROM, if it has a tape drive or a disk drive, and then the screen format, the text screens and the character size, you know, the matrix, they call it, and whether it has upper and lower case. Then on a separate page, it lists the same systems again, and this time it gives you a summary of some of the special features, you know, stuff that makes it unique. Like for the Atari, it says 16 graphics modes from all text to high resolution, four animated sprites or player missile graphics, keyboard graphics, and custom character set. For example, in the special notes for the Apple II Plus, it says high resolution, eight colors, low resolution, 16 colors, and some color inaccuracy. For the C64, it lists graphics characters, custom characters, mixed text and graphics, and eight animated sprites. The most expensive system seems to be the Xerox 820 for $32.95. The Zenith Z89 is right up there too, $28.95. And the HP 85A is $27.50. says the IBM PC at this point is $12.65, which is a lot lower than I remember it being. Right now it says the list for the Atari 800 is $899.95. For the Apple II, it's $13.30. And for the C64, it's $595. So if you're in the market for a new computer, I would say choose wisely. Choose Atari. The ad right after this page is interesting. I remember these things. I remember seeing ads for these, the lemon surge protectors. It's like this big, bright yellow thing. It's, it has two, I guess, I, I never saw the other side, but I assume it has two prongs that plug into both sets of outlets to, into the wall, and then it has six outlets on the like facing side. It has two lights on the top sort of indicating the surge protection status, I guess. But I remember seeing this these ads before all the time, and I, I don't think I've called it out on the podcast before, and I'm not sure how... You know, if they've shown up before and I've just missed them or what, but I certainly remember this ad quite clearly. The next article is Simulator by Christopher J. Flynn of Herndon, Virginia. It apparently is like a mini spreadsheet program. It's available for Microsoft Basics and there's an Atari version as well. It's not an editable spreadsheet like PhysiCalc or something, but it allows you to type in 
I guess, columns and lines, and you enter stuff in, and it'll update the values as it goes. But it does, it's not like a cursor. You don't like, you know, cursor over the things. You enter in rows or columns, and then you apparently enter in all the values of that row or that column. It's about 250 lines of basic spread over five columns and three pages. And the Microsoft Basic version seems to be the exact same number of lines, so it looks like they just changed what needed to be changed uh, for each particular line that needed something different on the Atari version. Next is Cal Calc, Computerize Your Diet, it says, by Charles Brannon, the editorial assistant. It has both Microsoft and Atari versions. It can help you lose weight by cutting calories. Be sure to consult with your doctor before using this program or any other weight loss technique. It's about 150 lines of basic in either version, and it's sort of asking you to track you know, enter what you ate, and it has a big data list of stuff and calories. Although not super huge. I mean, the the list of data statements is only probably 50 things, so uh, maybe it's expecting you to add in more things. Yeah, it says to customize this list, purchase a pocket-sized calorie counter book, and add or change the data statements. So the data statements list, you know, the name of the food, the number of calories, and then the quantity. And so you'd have to adjust that accordingly when you add new things into it. The next article has a clickbaity title before clickbait was a thing. It says, Is Your TV a Radiation Hazard? by Tom Halfhill, Features Editor. It says a letter in October's New England Journal of Medicine suggested home computers and video games used with older color TV sets could expose people to potentially hazardous doses of radiation. Apparently, the New England Journal of Medicine published a letter from two doctors at the VA hospitals warning that pre-1970 color TVs emit more X-rays than sets built later. So is that a thing? Do TVs actually produce x-rays? And yes, apparently they do. Because of the high voltage, you know, the electron gun shooting electrons to the screen to trigger the phosphorescence, x-rays can be generated. I guess there's various techniques to stop the x-rays, like they say the leaded glass or special different kinds of glass with barium or strontium. But I guess as the voltage gets higher, there's more chance of x-rays escaping from the glass. Apparently there was Restrictions and laws introduced, you know, I guess they're talking about these post-1970 TVs that prevented more x-rays from getting from escaping. So there's something to it. It's not just scaremongering, apparently. And this is the radiation limits, the government recommending fewer than 100 millirems per year for a person under 18. It said a kid sitting in front of a screen for two hours a day would absorb almost 800 millirems to the eyes and almost 900 millirems to the thyroid gland. It says, now before you panic and start worrying about acquiring a permanent glow from playing Space Invaders, there are several things to keep in mind. And they say the first is that it only is color TVs before 1970 that are used at closer than average viewing distances. And then second, the doctors who wrote the letter say they didn't actually measure radiation levels or perform any primary research. So in a sense, it was a little bit of fear-mongering. And they interview one of the authors, Dr. Lewis Corman, who says, it was a lark. I'm not a radiation expert. We were just sitting around one day talking about buying microcomputers and the subject came up. He said, we were aware of the radiation scare in the late 60s and just wanted to caution that these old sets should be used with prudence. And people who didn't take too kindly to this included the trade group of TV manufacturers, the Electronic Instrument Association. Their spokesperson, Alan Slosher, said, there are a statistically insignificant number of pre-1970s color TVs out there. Also, we believe people who use home computers tend to use these state-of-the-art devices on up-to-date TV equipment. We don't want to poo-poo this, but we don't think the body of evidence supports it. So the article concludes by saying that Congress had passed uh, radiation standards for TVs in the late 60s, but they only applied to new TVs going forward. And with the conversion to solid-state TVs, you know, in the late 60s or early 70s, that this danger is essentially eliminated. However, they said that about somewhere between 1% to 16% of the sets made back in the 60s exceeded these radiation limits that were deemed unhealthy by the FDA. 
but saying since the average life of a tube TV is 11 years, that most of those sets are no longer in use. Additionally, if you're worried about this and if you have a really old TV, they say sitting at least four or five feet away, there's practically no radiation at all, saying that the radiation intensity diminishes rapidly with distance. I think the conclusion we can really draw from this is just get yourself a big projection TV so you don't have to sit very close. Holy cow, how expensive would a projection screen TV have been back in 1982? Yikes. There's a little game aimed for preschoolers called Name Play by Bob Sullivan of Oak Park, Illinois. It says children who are just learning to recognize letters will be able to take pride in their ability to write the names of their favorite people. It's like a little 25-line basic program, and you have some data statements you can change to add names in, I guess, and they can recognize them. Not sure, no real screenshot. There's versions for the pet and the Atari. There's a new monthly column starting up, it looks like. Uh, Learning with Computers by Mary Humphrey of Teaching Tools Microcomputer Services of Palo Alto, California. It says, Computer Literacy, Can We Get There From Here? An overview, it says, Being language literate is absolutely essential in our society. Being computer literate is a great advantage and rapidly becoming a necessity. And poses the question, What is being done to meet the need for this new area of education? Getting computers into classrooms across the country is a start, but just a start. There's a great deal more involved. She says that many education departments have been given a mandate to develop definitions of computer literacy, establish criteria for teacher certification, and to begin teacher training programs in order to, you know, affect this development of computer literacy. One of the problems is training teachers, because she says teachers charged with computer education have typically had little computer training and even less instruction in how to teach computer skills. Becoming a computer instructor is often more a matter of personal interest and initiative than of formal qualifications. And then compares that to the students coming in, you know, the parents of the students, if they have a personal computer in the family, typically have little uh, trouble convincing the kids to actually start using the computer. And sort of implying that one of the problems teachers might face is the kids who actually know more about the computers than they do. In developing a computer program, she recommends several reports. One is Instructional Uses of Microcomputers, a report on British Columbia's pilot project, which says requests for copies can be sent to the Ministry of Education, Legislative Building, Victoria, BC, Canada, V8V-1X4. In that report, it said it's described the planning and implementing stages, training, and other services provided, and a complete evaluation of the impact of these services. It doesn't say at what level, though, that the services were provided. I mean, what you know, grade level. There's a booklet called Computers in the Classroom, written by Susan Burleson, who is an assistant principal in the San Ramon Valley Unified School District, set a step-by-step account of what this district did and did not do, and their recommendations to others. Said chapters cover setting goals in a district, identifying resources, computer awareness, readiness for in-service training, obtaining funds, budgeting, school-wide use, and home use of computers, anticipating problems, and evaluating progress. Copies cost $11 and are available from Susan Burleson herself and gives her address. Several other references to this in this sort of vein are, are also listed, one from a group in Utah, one from a group in Michigan. And it says while all these materials are not sort of professionally produced, they are carefully constructed and generally useful as teaching aids. But she says there aren't enough of them, and this sort of developing field is apparently what this column is going to be about. So we'll see how this column goes in the future. There's articles on Logo and Pilot that we'll skip. And then we hit the An Atari for Christmas article by Brenda Balch of Redondo Beach, California. This is part two. Last month was this sort of interactive Christmas card, the program that she developed to, to sort of respond personally to the individual people as they you know, sort of greet the computer on the gift-giving day. This article is Adding Music and Movement. And there's about 150 lines of basic. A lot of it's data statements containing the music. 
And speaking of music, that's The Legend of Zelda on my ringtone there. So I have been two-timing, I admit. I'm not only playing Atari games. I am totally hooked on Breath of the Wild. I completed the game once on regular mode, and now I'm on master mode. Mostly just exploring and finding all the Korok seeds, and generally avoiding all the battles I possibly can, because monsters regenerate their health, and my kids can do all the button-pressing combos to take out Lynels and whatever, and I'm like, there's too many buttons, just give me one button! Although, if I'm honest, I think two buttons would have been really good for the 8-bits. I think there's a lot of games that would have benefited for having two buttons. But more than two, nobody needs more than two, right? All right, back to the article. She talks about making short melodies using the Music Composer cartridge and describes the P-note subroutine that she made. How it reads one note from a data statement that has the pitch and duration, and then that gets called at various times when she wants to play some music. Then goes over animation and said she just wanted simple animation, just using player missile graphics, and that horizontal movement was enough. So just using the position of the player rather than having to move the players up and down with a machine language subroutine. So for her particular example, she wanted a dancer, and she talks about sort of self-deprecatingly that she's not an artist, and how she did her best using graph paper, and then how she timed the music with the animation, so it would alternate like the movement of a dancer's foot with a playing of a single note. There's no screenshot, and it doesn't seem to be archived anywhere, so I'm not sure what it actually ended up looking like. Next is a little game. It's called Hidden Maze by Gary Bowden of Narragansett, Rhode Island. It's for tons of different computers, the OSI, the PET, Atari, VIC-20, and Apple. And there's a, pretty much a different listing for each computer because the techniques are used differently to generate the same sort of result. The idea of the game is it's a maze that only reveals a certain amount, so you can only see a few like squares around your character. And then as you move, it exposes more and more of the maze. There's an Atari Notes section that's written by Charles Brannon and said that for other machines, the array is constructed in memory, but for the Atari, you can actually construct it right on the screen and using custom characters and uh, colors, you can actually draw the whole maze on the screen, but just set the stuff that's invisible to the same color as the background color. So using Graphics 1, which is the five-color mode, where you have four different colors in the background, I guess there's. it seems what they're doing is they have versions of the maze pieces in one color and then the same version in a different color, and then one of those colors is set to the same as the background, so that when you want to expose the the maze, you determine which characters you want to change, and then change them, change the character on screen to a version that has the different foreground color. It's about 60 lines of basic, and has a little screenshot showing you that it's a 20 by 24 maze, and each wall and each um, passageway is one character in size. So, you know, that's, that's the sort of resolution we're working with. Next, we come to Fred D'Ignazio's column, The World Inside the Computer, and this is subtitled, Letters from Readers, Software, Sexism, and Other Topics. So back in the August issue, he had a program called The Computer Friend, and a reader, Jan Murphy, replied, objecting to the phrase, is this child a boy or a girl the computer friend should know? And so Jan Murphy wrote a big long letter that he quotes a substantial portion of, saying, why am I mad? I said to myself, how refreshing it would be to have a friend who didn't care if you were a boy or a girl. Why should the computer friend know the gender of a child? So the friend can treat the child in an appropriate way? How about letting the computer friend treat the child like a child instead? And then she writes, I don't go around saying all men are horrible or or get active in political things or do many other things that people imagine feminists do. I reject the term feminist. I want human liberation, freedom for both men and women to be who they are. She says, so if my brother can't fix a car, who cares? That makes him bad at fixing cars, not less masculine. And if I like computers, why shouldn't I? This is the kind of trap I see us all falling into when I read the computer friend should know the child is a boy or a girl. 
There's a great XKCD comic about just this thing. And in fact, if you type up XKCD girl, it comes up with XKCD girls are bad at math, where there's two pains to the comic where there's a boy doing a math problem wrong and the another boy saying, wow, you suck at math. And then there's a girl doing a math problem wrong. And the boy says, wow, girls suck at math. And this is exactly the point that Jan Murphy raises in her letter. She continues, it can't be coincidence that girls often do better at math in elementary school, yet by the time they're in 12th grade, they can't cope with numbers. Referencing her own upbringing, she said there were three girls and 27 boys in her physics class. And then says, why do you think I never learned which way to turn a screwdriver until one of my male friends taught me? Because girls don't get building toys for Christmas, that's why. Or telescopes, chemistry sets, or tools. Why? There's no reason. It's just the way things always have been done. She says, I want our children to be people first and doers of great deeds and makers of great works. And when they're firmly settled with their sense of worth, then they can learn to be boys and girls if it is still necessary. And she quotes Ursula K. Le Guin saying to oppose something is to maintain it. If you turn your back and walk away from it, you're still on the road. You must go somewhere else. You must have another goal. Then you will walk another road. She concludes saying that be careful about what you might be doing unconsciously. But she does say that he's been doing pretty good so far using she and her some of the time. And she says, I've noticed, yes, and I was impressed, so keep up the good work. He has a lengthy response, probably a column and a half's worth of text, saying it was a thoughtful and thought-provoking letter, but it angered and upset me, and it also convinced me I made a serious blunder. Said he spent several days talking about what Jan said with his wife, and said that he's glad that she wrote because... The issue she raised was vital, that the more friendly software becomes, the more it acts like a person, that is, the more it will carry hidden values. And then the question is, what are those values? Are they fair to all people, or are they prejudiced and unfair? He's saying, as we design more and more complicated software, the values that we put in our programs will be transmitted and absorbed by young children. And it's important for us as parents and teachers, he says, to uncover these values and make sure they are similar to our own values. And then, unfortunately, he embarks on some mansplaining of the early 80s idea of the gender binary. So brace yourselves for this. He begins, In this specific case, I'm afraid I have to disagree with Jan over whether the computer friend should ask the child's sex. I think it should for two reasons. First, the child's sex is a biological fact. For biological reasons alone, the child's sex is a central fact of the child's life. The child identifies herself or himself in part based on that fact. I'm not saying what that fact means. I'm not saying girls and boys shouldn't be free to express their personalities. I'm only saying it's an important fact that should not be covered up, rationalized, or denied. And here we go. If I were a boy or a girl and I had a computer friend, I would want my friend to know my sex. So essentially he doubles down on his, you know, mansplaining. He's just received like information from another perspective and he immediately discounts it, saying that he knows what's best that a boy or a girl wants. The second reason that he disagrees with Jan is saying that unlike the computer friend, the child does not live in a vacuum, it lives in the real world. And he says in the real world, prejudice is everywhere, you know, it's in laws and people's values and opinions, into institutions, into almost every aspect of our lives. I'm going to choose to interpret this next part charitably because I think he's trying to do the right thing. He just is using sort of inarticulate 80s language that we certainly wouldn't use today. He says... If the friend is to become a real friend, it must learn which side of the sexual fence the child is on. In the 80s, it would certainly be very uncommon to read anything outside of the gender binary in any sort of, you know, media, print, TV, whatever. Back then, it was a fence, you know, one way or the other way. Now, we see it as a spectrum. And what leads me to believe that he's maybe trying to, I'm, I'm choosing to believe he's acting in good faith, is the next sentence. Because he says he wants to help the child to overcome the injurious sexual stereotypes that pressure the child into certain kind of behavior, career, or style of life. It's just ironic that it's saying to overcome these sexual stereotypes, he's done a sexual stereotype and ignored the advice of a member of one of the classes that he purports to want to help. 
this lack of diversity is certainly a common theme in the podcast here as I go through all these articles, you know, from from the early on, you know, episode one of the podcast, I noted some of this stuff. And that is a problem with our hobby here is its lack of diversity. It's just too bad. You know, the letter in this article was an example of diversity and it was just like mansplained away. And unfortunately, you can bet that that's not the last time we're going to run into this in this podcast. Next is an article, Understanding Vic High Resolution Graphics by Roger N. Trendowski of Randolph, New Jersey. And I only mention this to show the graphics of the Vic itself. It's a 176 horizontal and 184 vertical and what looks like monochrome graphics. So it's 22 by 23, 8x8 characters. We skip some Apple and Pet stuff. And then there's a review of the Epson GraphTrax 80 by Charles Brannon. So it's a ROM upgrade for the Epson MX80 printer. It said, Epson introduced our MX80, a small, fast, relatively quiet 80-character printer at under $800. Yikes. But they said this new ROM upgrade, so it's a chip, you have to open up the printer and replace some ROM chips. It gives it sort of pixel-addressable graphics modes, either 960 dots per line or 480 dots per line. Also, apparently you can change the sort of escape codes you can use for the printer, so you can spoof some other... It says it uses an example of the Centrotic 737. So you could change the codes for the MX80, and then the programs that expected the Centronic 737 would then run without modification. To use the graphics mode of the printer, it has eight bits that correspond to the eight pins of the printhead, the vertical printhead. As the printhead moves across the paper, it prints like vertical lines, and so you can control which of the eight pins you know get fired or not. It said using graph tracks from BASIC is unbearably slow. So you'll probably want a machine language program to do printing of graphics. There's a column, Computers in Society, by David Thornburg, the associate editor, talking about animatronics, how Nolan Bushnell has his Chuck E. Cheese characters, and the rest of the article really is about this comparison between this new restaurant called Bullwinkles. Based on the Saturday morning cartoon, it's apparently the author met up with one of the uh, marketing people from this Bullwinkles restaurant, talks about how the animatronics run off computers that use the S100 hardware. The restaurant aims to improve on stuff that Nolan Bushnell did with Chuck E. Cheese, including a bunch of computer-controlled stuff like a big water display. And it said the system that notifies people when their order is ready is none other than a trusty Apple II. It doesn't say how many restaurants are open currently as of 1982. It says there's a plan for 13 in Canada and for a total of 29 restaurants to be constructed in 1983. And apparently the fortunes waxed and waned over the years. Looks like going through several reorganizations and selling off restaurants and stuff, but there are currently two locations still operating, apparently. One in Oregon and one in Washington State. There's some pet and apple stuff that we'll skip. Next is an article re-number by Manny Wan of Dale City, California. It's an interesting and detailed analysis of Atari Basic, the tokenization of it, and how this program actually will renumber your Basic program, including resolving all the references in, you know, go tos, go subs, if thens, traps, and restores. It's about 50 lines of Basic that you tack onto the end of your own program, and then you do a go to to that new line number there at the end that prompts you for how you want to renumber your program. And then it goes through, it says it takes a couple minutes, you know, depending on the size of your program, but it attempts to resolve all the references, including those of, it says symbolic references, like go to label, where label's a variable. The author includes an explanation about how all this works, talking about the variable table, the tokenization, how numbers are stored as binary coded decimal, and that it can do all this in less than 50 lines of basic is really pretty impressive. There's the article Text Plot 2 by Mark Greeby of York, Nebraska. 
It's a modification of the original text plot, a utility that was published in Compute in November 1981. David Plotkin had an article using text plot for animated games in April of 1982. I'm sure I covered both, but I don't remember. So let's do a quick flashback here. Let's look at the November 1981 article, Text Plot by Charles Bannon. It's a machine language graphics utility to let you mix text and graphics. So you can use, you can draw characters from a character set onto a graphics mode. It's designed for the four-color graphics modes, it says. And the limitation, as noted in uh, this article in our in our current magazine, is that it only draws on four-pixel boundaries. So you can't put it at any arbitrary X location. It's got to be on essentially what turns out to be a byte boundary. And the reason for this current article here in December 82 is to expand that and allow it to be positioned at arbitrary X locations, not just byte boundaries. There's no assembly language listing in the 1981 article, so apparently the author disassembled it and then made changes and then reassembled it. And unfortunately, there's no assembly language listing in this one either. So you just have a basic program with a bunch of data statements. The April 1982 article by David Plotkin of Richmond, California, is using text plot for animated games, and it notes this issue of being able to position at any Y coordinate, but only every eight pixels in the X direction. So back to text plot 2 here. Currently, December 1982, we have what is essentially a high-res character generator with the additional ability to print at non-character boundaries. I imagine, you know, not having seen the assembly source, because it's not shown in the text listing and I haven't typed it in to disassemble it, I imagine it's using, you know, shifts and rotates and stuff to do all this stuff. So it could be made to be faster by using a pre-shifted character set. But there you're trading off memory for speed. And compared to what you can do from basic, this is, you know, orders of magnitude faster. So you wouldn't need pre-shifted characters in order to have a, a tremendous speed boost. And I think that's kind of what this is geared for, is geared towards, you know, fast character plotting from basic and not necessarily to be used from an assembly language routine itself. Next is a Commodore 64 sprite editor that I'm going to hold my nose and uh, page through real quickly. So I don't have to get jealous of your eight multicolor sprites. There's the article Atari Peak and Poke Alternatives by Jerry White of Levittown, New York. It says this tutorial shows a quick way to select random numbers using peak and poke to increase speed. He says if you just need a random number occasionally and aren't doing like a continual grab of a bunch of random numbers right in a row, you can just use peak location 20, which is the fastest incrementing location of the real time clock. It increments one every 60th of a second. So as long as you aren't reading a bunch of those in a row, and there's a sufficient gap between when you read them, you'll get a kind of random-ish number, you know, not necessarily deterministic from a basic point of view. And he shows a couple, you know, two-line test programs to show you the difference between using the random command and this peak. After skipping a few articles for other computers, we have the Atari Moving Message Utility by Michael A. Ivins of Cheyenne, Wyoming. It's about 100 lines of basic that scrolls messages horizontally across a, like graphics to screen as kind of like a ticker tape sort of utility. Um, the example is a happy holidays message that scrolls across. And there's a few more uninteresting things. And we get to the Inside Atari column by Bill Wilkinson of Optimized System Software, Cupertino, California. And he says this month he will follow through with one of his promises to fix the 850s handler of the low mem problem. Of that, he says he's sadly dismayed to see so many Atari-produced and Atari-compatible products being introduced nowadays, which violate one of the prime rules for running on the Atari. Don't put anything lower in memory than low mem. 
And if I think I understand what's happening, apparently the DOSes will sort of reset low mem even if some other handler is present that also resets the low mem. So whatever DOS gets initialized through the DOS INI vector, it thinks that it has total control over what low mem should be and kind of ignores any previous value. It apparently depends on the order at which stuff is called. And apparently what his patch does, which is a some assembly language routine that is listed here, but there's no like basic loader or anything. So I guess you're supposed to assemble it yourself. But what it does is it steals the old DOS INI value, calls DOS INI, the old value, and then calls the 850 handler to set the low mem in the proper order. Anyway, I guess this saves you from hitting reset to have to load the 850 handler again. So if you're using an 850 handler, you might need this patch. There's the machine language column by Jim Butterfield. This is titled Hexed. It's all about converting from binary to hex to decimal and how you go back and forth. There's a speed limit for your Atari by Mike Steinberg of Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. It's 10 lines of basic that you put at the front of your program. Apparently, then if you run this program, it uses the select and option keys to sort of kind of like page through the listing of your program. Kind of like the more command for Unix, if you're familiar with that, I think, where you just like can view via pages. And we're approaching the end of the magazine here with a new product section. They talk about two joysticks from Suncom, the Ultimate Joystick, also called the Starfighter, and the Slick Stick. There's the personal finance and record-keeping package from the Cytor company. It says small business and home financial automation. It says VisiCalc compatible ledger. Two utility packages for the Atari it's from Synergistic Software. The Programmer's Workshop and the Disk Workshop, it says, contains seven programs, including a micro-DOS, a disk to cassette, cassette transfer, some basic program utilities, and a couple code analysis programs. It notes Platter Mania, a new ROM cartridge game from Epix. Don't know that I've heard of that game before. Games from Avalon Hill, it note Legionnaire and Moon Patrol. I didn't think Moon Patrol was released by Avalon Hill. But it turns out it's not Moon Patrol, the arcade conversion. It's a different Moon Patrol. It's this player circle the moon trying to touch down at the landing site while dodging and destroying enemy invaders. And it's a very different game than the Moon Patrol we all know as Moon Patrol. So the Epic's game, Monster Maze, and they know Attack at EPCYG4 is available that we talked about in the Antic magazine. And finally, there's property management of software for the Atari. It's a template for VisiCalc. If that book review didn't convince you to get like five thirty dollars video games instead of buying a VisiCalc. And with that, we're done with the magazine, and I'm not going to mention what's on the back cover. Let's just say there's a number that's a power of two, and the company used to employ William Shatner as its spokesperson. Let's look at the creative computing. This is December 1982, volume 8, number 12, 2 bucks 95 on the cover price, 434 pages in this looks like holiday issue. On the cover is this sort of pixelized painting. It's not actually a computer drawing. It's just made to look so. It's pixelized. It looks like it's uh, dimensions of like a graphics 10 pixel, you know, in a 4 by 1 aspect ratio. And actually counting the colors, it might have actually been possible to do this in graphics 10. Apart from the vertical size, I think there's more than 192 lines. But it's a picture of a like culturally white Santa Claus. So there's white, black, and green is the background. And there's a couple shades of gray. There's a couple shades of red for the hat. And there's like a peach and a pink for sort of the flesh tones. So yeah, apart from the vertical size, I think this actually could have been drawn in Graphics 10. The sash on the upper right corner that kind of cuts through top of Santa's hat says techniques to improve your programs. But the rest of the text on the cover doesn't really say much about that. In the in-depth evaluation section, it does say 18 games for gift-giving, so that'll be interesting. 
It also says uh, it's going to have an in-depth evaluation of the ColecoVision, which is germane to my 5200 special that's sort of ongoing at this time. It also says build a standard keyboard for your Atari 400, and it lists the column for Atari and then the other computers. And then it also has tutorials on Ada and Pilot, and a special section on robots and artificial intelligence. So some stuff we'll cover, some stuff we won't. And already 50 pages through, and I'm not really covering much yet. The uh, There is an ad for the Timex Sinclair 1000, which is the ZX81 brought to the United States. And there's still no great sort of idea of scale. It's a two-page ad, and on the left side, they have the sort of a top view of the computer, so you can see the keyboard and the, the back part of the computer, and you know, you're know you looking straight down on it. And behind it is like a blue light radiating out, and there's a picture of two hands next to it. But it seems like the palms of the hands are about the size or the height of the keyboard, how, how you know, the space from the um, numeric row down to the bottom row. And there's no space bar, so it's just a four-row keyboard. But it seems like it implies that the four rows are about the size of the palm of your hand. But then on the facing page, they have an actual photo of the sort of a side view almost parallel to the desk. So the it's foreshortened, you can't really see much of the detail of the keyboard, but you can see the little rectangles of the keys, and there's a finger about to press a key, and that finger looks like much bigger in that photo than it does on the the previous page. So I think they're still like not being totally honest about the size. I was certainly surprised when I found out how small it was. There's a review of the ColecoVision that I will defer to one of the 5200 episodes. Then we get to the stocking stuffers, games for Apple, TRS-80, and Atari. First, they review Choplifter, which is only for this, like currently for the Apple II, but this is available soon for the 400-800. The summary is unending realistic action. They say the animation in the game is amazing, and it's an impressive program, although the joystick controls are touchy. And unfortunately, the Atari suffers from having to use one button to both fire and rotate the helicopter, so it's definitely, it, that is an advantage on the Apple. There's a bunch of stuff that's just on the Apple, Gorgon, Nightmare Gallery, Space Eggs, Beer Run, App Venture to Atlantis, A-P-V-E-N-T-U-R-E, which I guess it could because it's only on the Apple App Venture. There is Track Attack, which is currently on the Apple, but says soon for the Atari 400-800. It's kind of a mixed review. You said the summary is The Fair Train Robbery, I guess in reference to the movie The Great Train Robbery, which I remember really liking as a kid. Another movie like Buck Rogers, where I can still recall the theme song in my head at any time. Anyway, the reviewer says that it's executed well, it's just not, like, their particular interest. It's an unusual game requiring good reflexes, try it, you might like it. So no particular defects listed in the review, just this reviewer apparently didn't really like it. All the games for the TRS-80 don't really have a conversion to the Atari. And then we get into the Atari-specific ones. There's Pool 1.5, which they say is an excellent high-resolution real-time simulation. And I remember playing this quite a bit. Nautilus saying Mike Potter has done it again, this time in the guise of Captain Nemo. It's the split-screen scrolling two-player game where you have the destroyer on the top trying to depth charge the submarine on the bottom. It's quite a fun game for two players, for sure. Then there's a review of Seamus by Catherine Otaga. It says, don't hold your breath trying to complete the game. It'll take you at least a month. It's saying it's very addictive or will remain at the front of your game software collection for some time. It says, arcade adventuring is an emergent and promising gaming category, and this program underscores that fact. There's a five-page article on text-to-speech by Gordon McComb. It talks about how the synthesizers work, and it mentions the Votrax, which is available for the Atari. 
It talks about the difficulties in translating English into something that the computer can chop into the bits of phonemes that make up the sounds that it produces. And especially English, having so many words borrowed from all sorts of different languages, there's all sorts of different pronunciation things based on you know context and you know, spellings all over the place. And the difficulties in making an automated algorithm to do this kind of stuff is quite complicated. So they say a lot of times when you're driving a, a synthesizer yourself, You'll misspell words intentionally in order to give the computer an easier time to render it. The example they would use is clothes, as in clothing. That you might sort of intentionally misspell clothes as C-L-O-Z-E to get the voice synthesizer to repeat what you want. You also might break up compound words like baseball, it says. Or if you can't get accurate enough reproduction, you access the speech synthesizer directly using phoneme control. The article concludes by giving you several ways that you can use the synthesizer, you know, like spicing up a game, or in educational programs for voice assistance, or even in business programs, but that was not a feature that was really widely desired in VisiCalc. The next article is Talk is Getting Cheaper by John Anderson, and this is another article about speech synthesis. But unlike the previous article, this is more technical in nature. It has some information about programming the Echo Speech Synthesizer, the Alien Group Voice Box, and SAM, the software-only solution. The Echo Voice Box is a RS-232 connection. The Alien Group has a SIO connection for the Atari, and, you know, Sam, of course, is, is software. Among the interesting distinctions is that the Echo Box can be programmed to sing, apparently, and he says it has the best sort of text recognition of the three systems, you know, plain English to speech. The Echo Box also has a speaker built in, or it can be, has out jacks for, like, an external speaker. It's unclear to me whether the voice box plays through the Atari or if it has its own speaker. It's not clear in this article, and I've never seen one. He also says because the Echo has its own processor built in, you can kind of just feed text to that system and it'll process it at its own rate, while both the other systems require computing power of the Atari to make them actually speak. Both the hardware devices have a knob on them that can control like the pitch or rate of speech. It says unique to the voice box is that you can mix text, normal English text, and phonemes in the same, like, text string. The others, they say, have different modes for each. Comparing the two hardware solutions, says the voice box is not really in the same league as the Echo, it is much less expensive. SAM, of course, is the cheapest of them, but some of the limitations of SAM is it only can speak for about two and a half seconds before it's forced to take a break, and then, of course, how it shuts down the screen in order to use all the processing time for the speech output. But it says, I cannot overstate how impressed I am with SAM. It's a remarkable feat of software savvy and probably one of the best buys available for the Atari computer. There's an article about a similar SAM type system for the color computer. And then there's a little thing about some robots, including a $1,400 chess playing robot. And then we come to an article, Inventing the Future by L. Pierce Williams, which is a reprint, it says, from a publication of Cornell University's Graduate School of Business and Public Administration. So it's always fun to look at these articles where they intend to predict the future. One of the first things they note is by the year 2000, solar energy will be efficiently produced, saying efficiency is defined in the terms of the escalating price of oil. And in a throwaway line, they say, almost a reality today, nuclear fusion should be beyond the pilot stage by 2000. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard, oh, nuclear fusion's only 20 years away, you know, and it's still 20 years away. But it says these breakthroughs, as important as they are, pale before the consequences of the computer revolution. In my opinion, nuclear fusion doesn't pale before anything. If we had nuclear fusion, i.e. unlimited energy, we could solve the climate crisis, we could get fresh water to everybody by desalinization, and maybe there'd be enough power to DDoS Facebook and shut them down. 
Anyway, we're only a few paragraphs into the article, and the rest of it, it's, you know, it's three more pages, is all about how the computer revolution is going to affect our lives by the year 2000. And rather than do quotes, I think I'm just going to do kind of a bulleted list of summary items here that they say. So they talk about genetic manipulation of DNA. They don't really mention the term gene sequencing, but that's kind of what they're talking about. So that prediction was okay. No whammies there. They say, except in the most backward sections of the country, manual labor will have vanished. And by the number of times they reference New York City in this article as a positive, then I think they probably mean backward is anywhere that's not New York City. So yeah, we'll give them several whammies for this one, their use of the word backward, and the fact that manual labor is still a thing. They say cities are going to vanish, because cities are the area where people congregate in order to have interaction with business, commercial, transportation issues. But because computers no longer require personal contact to spread ideas, it says, there's no need for cities. It says the business office of the year 2000 will be the home. And as we've seen from the pandemic, remote work is indeed possible and even in some jobs just as productive. But predicting that the businesses would be all from home in 2000 is a clear whammy. They say all housework, as dull and routine as it is, can now be done by robots. Whammy. They say cooking, dishwashing, cleaning, and even bed making. The traditional tasks that have hitherto driven the ambitious woman from the house will soon be relegated to mechanical servants. Wouldn't be the 80s without some sexism in there, so how about we give you two whammies for that one, their article writer person? Says a central home computer can easily keep an inventory of all the food and even place orders to the nearest super warehouse to be filled mechanically. So, whammy? They do get a partial non-whammy for talking about, essentially, you know, packaging, warehousing, shipping of products, saying that will be revolutionized by computers, but they, then they say it'll be delivered by computer-driven vehicles and then unpacked at the home by a computer system without human interaction necessary. So maybe overall, I'd give them 0.95 whammies for that section. They say food production will be largely automated, and certainly in the year 2000, that was a total whammy. You know, 20 years later, they have automated tractors and stuff because they're talking about farming. But still, yeah, the idea that the computer would replace every aspect of farming is, even now, a 100% whammy. The article talks about computers and robots that can make other computers and robots, essentially von Neumann machines. So we got a whammy right there. In the medical field, they talk about robotic machinery to do surgeries and stuff, which, yeah, I'll give them credit for that one. No whammy. But then they kind of go on and say, robotic microsurgeons of the future should be able to put tired and used human beings back together, saying reattachment of limbs will be routine, and indeed even possible that surgery, the actual incision, will become obsolete. So certainly micro-robotic surgeries, like inside the body without incision, is a big old whammy. But in non-whammy nature, they say that surgical intervention in such precarious areas as the brain, liver, pancreas, and other vital organs will become commonplace. They do mention a little bit of genetic engineering, although they don't call it that, saying genetic instructions could be inserted into bacteria to create products like interferon and insulin. And so that's certainly an area of research, although it's not totally solved by now. Certainly wasn't by 2000, so mostly whammy, I suppose. And then finally, they bring up cloning, saying that what a joy it would have to be to raise yourself, give yourself a second chance, and arm your clone with all the knowledge that you suffered through in life. No possible ethical implications of that. I'll give that a whammy on principle. And that's really it for predictions in terms of technology itself. I had the idea that they might sort of get a couple predictions correct here based on a few sentences right near the end, you know, saying they might understand there were some you know, negative consequences of this. Because there's a sentence that turns out to be a throwaway, which says, education in the arts may simply wither and die. And some introspection about that sentence would have been interesting. You know, the decentralization of 
people means you know fewer actual interactions, and it's not very many more leaps to come to the conclusion that you know, maybe we end up with what we have now is the system of social media and information silos, you know, people sharing conspiracy theories as fact, and sort of the destabilization of society that way. And I don't, maybe that's too many leaps to to go through, seeing how they've got so many things correct in this article, I wouldn't expect them to get that. And then concluding in rather bizarro fashion, saying, what will men and women do when there's nothing that they have to do? It says, history gives us some guides saying that in France, the 17th century aristocracy, with nothing, nothing much to do, turned parasitic and they formed into elite groups. It says, marked off from the rest of French population by its strange etiquette and pride of race, it invented all sorts of social games to preserve its identity and to give meaning to its way of life. And I'm reading that and say, okay, so they agree that was bad. But in the next sentence, it says, by doing so, it recovered the kind of vitality. I think that's drawing all the wrong points from 17th century French aristocracy. So what do we end up with? 48 whammies and like 1.75 non-whammies in that article? Well, there's virtually nothing more wrong than a set of predictions from 80s computer magazines. There's an eight-page article over 20 pages in the magazine, so you know more than half ads, called Computers and Creativity by Richard P. Tendike, that I'm not going to summarize because the last article took too much out of me, proposing to ask the question, can a computer be truly creative? So that's very theoretical and hand-wavy, and I am yeah burned out by the last article, so I'm not going to do that one. And I'm going to skip a few more articles in this sort of hand-waving vein. I will mention there's an article, The Countess in the Computer Language is part two of a series of tutorials on the Ada programming language by Jeff Gilpin. And you can definitely see the idea of programming by contract because all the procedures have the variables in and out, the types, you know, it's a very type-heavy language, it seems. Very verbose. Comments seem to be indicated by a double dash character. It's quite long. It's eight pages or partial pages over 15 pages of the magazine. Then we're getting into the skip-heavy section of the magazine. We're talking about the you know, logo and other various stuff on different platforms that we don't really care about. There's an interesting, if out-of-character, diversion here. There's a four-page article, Surf vs. Mamura, by Jonathan Surf. It's a analysis of a championship Othello match. There's no computer code or anything here. It's, it's like a board analysis where they have 12 diagrams showing the state of the board at various places. It's kind of a blow-by-blow of this championship match. No computer tie-in at all. I'm just curious as to why they put it in. I mean, I like Othello quite a bit. It says the article reprinted from Othello Quarterly, the official journal of the United States Othello Association, which is a group that still exists at usothello.org. Next is an article, Parallel Processing for Your Computer, by Edward E. Brent Jr., Opens with sort of a joke saying that every microcomputer on the market today operates interactively and hence requires two processors to operate, the microprocessor, and an older, somewhat more archaic, often unreliable, but remarkably efficient processor, the user. And after that knee slapper, the author says he thought it was impossible for the computer itself to do more than one task at the same time, but he says that was not the case. Noting that most of the time the computer is either doing something or waiting for the user to do something. And that waiting time is a place where the computer can do some tasks. There's an example of like serial processing, you know, one task after another. It has a little example in basic that then he works a little bit to have what really turns out to be the appearance of parallel processing because there's really just the one processor so you don't have multiple concurrent tasks. Essentially, his idea is to break up problems into small little chunks that can be run concurrently with the computer waiting on the user for something. So this is totally in the guise of prompt 
and type sort of program. So it's all text-based stuff, saying that the idea is that where the computer is taking the longest time to generate its results should also be the time when the user is taking the longest time to type in whatever data they're typing. So there's several more examples in this kind of vein, but this is in no way real parallel processing, and it's not even like the vertical blank interrupt available on the Atari. This is essentially how to make a program feel more interactive and less like you're waiting on the computer's response on something. Good programming practice, but not parallel processing by any stretch. There's the article Searching Techniques Part 4 by Edward Mitchell. This is all about sorts. And so it has a detailed description of four types of sorts, the quick sort, the shell sort, the selection sort, and the bubble sort, in order of best to worst by efficiency. It has good examples. It tries to walk through all four sorts, and at various stages of, you know, various steps of each sort, it shows you what's going on. All the examples for each of the four sort routines are trying to sort an array from lowest to highest. So the selection sort steps through all the elements and finds the lowest element and then pulls that one out and then marks that element as not to be searched again by, it says, tagging it with some very large number. Then it goes through the list again, finds the next lowest number, and pulls that one out, and etc. It goes through the entire list, and so it's easy to see why the selection sort is slow. The bubble sort is even worse, because it compares the first element to the next element, and if they're out of order, swaps them. But it does that for every single element, so it checks the second one with the third one, and if they're out of order, swaps them. One pass through the whole list means that the highest value will then be placed at the top, but the rest of the list is still not ordered. And why it's called the bubble sort is you can think of it as the one value bubbling up to the top of the list. But then you've got to go through and you've got to go back to the beginning and start over again, and then it bubbles the next highest value to the top of the list. So you can see how there may be many more comparisons in the bubble sort than the selection sort. So those two sorts you shouldn't use practically, they're terrible. But the next two sorts, the shell sort and the quick sort, are worthy of your consideration. The shell sort I had heard of before, but I didn't realize it was named after a a guy, Donald Shell. It was invented in 1959. And the way it works is that you choose a step value that's about half the size of the list. Then you look at all those values of those indexes. So say the step value is 4, you look at elements 1, 5, 9, etc., and sort those. And then you start at element 2 and look at elements 2, 6, 10, and sort those. And then 3 would be... 3, 7, and 11, and sort those. And 4, it'd be 4, 8, and 12, and sort those. So within each group, they're now sorted, but the whole list is not sorted. The next step is to take a step value that's about half that size. So then you'd look at elements 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, etc., sort those. And then 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, sort those. And then the final step would be a value of 1, a step value of 1. So essentially now you're going to look at every single element and its neighbor and swap those. And once you do that, then the list will be sorted. This algorithm is still widely used. One of its advantages over other sort algorithms is that it takes no additional space. Everything can be done in place and there's no additional recursive call stack or anything that we'll see in the quicksort coming up here. The quicksort for average cases is among the fastest sorts available. It works differently than these other sorts. It chooses a pivot value, and then it breaks the list up into two separate lists, those that have a value less than the pivot value and those that have a value greater than the pivot value. As a result, you now have three things. You have the pivot value, a group of numbers that's less than the pivot value, and a group of numbers that's greater than the pivot value. The pivot value can be considered to be in the correct place now, and then you treat the group of numbers that's less than the pivot and the group of values that's greater than the pivot as two separate new problems. And once those are sorted, you'll have a complete sorted list. This sort is a prime example of recursion, 
since each subsort is just a, another example of a quicksort problem. Because recursion on arbitrary size lists creates sort of this list of function calls, the amount of memory used is not fixed. So if you have a you know bazillion element list, you might have a centibazillion function calls as a result of this recursion. You know, each function call takes a certain number of bytes to store the, you know, return pointer and stuff. So this could potentially be an unbounded, well, not unbounded. I guess the list is going that you're sorting is going to be finite, but you know, it could take quite a bit of extra memory that you might have to allocate somehow. Sorting is essentially based on trade-offs. There's all sorts of sort algorithms and they all have pluses and minuses. And while the quick sort is fastest in general, it's extremely slow if the list happens to be almost sorted. So a lot of the algorithms that you'll find in standard libraries and stuff will be a modification of the quicksort or some hybrid algorithm that tries to reduce the weaknesses of some of these algorithms in order to get good performance in most cases. The article includes some basic programs and some pseudocode to test out all these sorting algorithms and includes like 10 references at the end if, in case you want to learn more about sorting algorithms that aren't defined here. Next, there's an article, The Monkey and the Hunter by Steve Rogoski. This describes the physics behind a scenario of a hunter trying to use a tranquilizer gun to capture a rare breed of monkey to bring it as a specimen to a zoo. The problem being this is an idealized monkey and it can see the muzzle flash of the bullet leaving the gun. So this is long before the sound reaches the monkey's ears. And that if the monkey is hanging on a tree and drops immediately when seeing the bullet leave the gun, where does the hunter have to aim in order to make sure that hits the monkey? So it describes all sorts of scenarios, you know, what happens when the hunter is above the monkey, when the hunter is below the monkey, when they're at the same level. It describes the physics, the path the projectile will take under the force of gravity and the, given the velocity of the bullet itself. So it does a little bit of the derivation of the equation of motion of this rifle bullet. And it has three different programs that do that, those calculations for the, the Coco and the Atari 800. Essentially, it's kind of like the old artillery program, you know, the one where you'd have the two cannons and the bags of powder and, and the angle and stuff. So similarly, it asks the muzzle velocity of the bullet, the elevation of the monkey, the angle, the increments in time, the, you know, the step values, then it prints this table to see if you've successfully hit the monkey. And then it concludes, it says you could make this your own game by adding some graphics and then controls for one person to say when the monkey is going to release and the other person having the angle and the trigger for the rifle of the, of the hunter but leaves it as an exercise to the reader or, in our case, listener. There's a bunch of articles that we'll skip here because they're not for the Atari, and then we get to Building a Standard Keyboard for the Atari 800 by Robert Noskowitz. The article opens saying he was researching between a 400 and 800, and because the operating system and everything internally is the same, it really comes down to the RAM expandability, the cartridge slots, and the keyboard. And there are plenty of RAM options to get your 400 to 48K. There are very few cartridges that use the right slot. And so the only serious difference he found was the keyboard. Because the 800 cost $400 more, he decided to go for the 400 and saying, after six months of use, I was extremely happy with my computer except for the keyboard. I found the flat keyboard impairs the ability to enter data quickly, as well as causing discomfort when entering a substantial amount of information into the system. I went from I'll get used to it to it's not that bad to total exasperation. And this little two-page article is how he added an additional keyboard to his 400. 
He said he tried to find help for how the keyboard was wired, but the technical user's notes didn't have any info. He couldn't find any info from home computer stores. And then he said he called Atari's toll-free number in California. And he says, if you've ever called Atari, you already know that they do not like you to make changes in their hardware and provide very little technical help. So he said he realized he'd have to do it himself. And then he sat down to open up the 400 and he used an ohmmeter to figure out the wiring. So there's a wiring diagram of what I guess is termed the row-column matrix. It doesn't mention that here, but I think that's what it's called. When you press a switch, two wires are connected to it. And when you find which two wires have continuity, you can tell which key has been pressed. I think that's how it works. This is a very, like, sort of high-level overview. There's no real step-by-step instructions for this, so you'd have to do a lot of work yourself. I mean, seeing how he did it, at least you know it's possible. But this is definitely, by any means, not a step-by-step instruction. Essentially, he found a new keyboard that didn't have a PC, you know, um, PC board on the back of it, so it had access to the actual contacts for each key. And it shows a picture of just a bunch of wires soldered in place, connected to a DB25 connector on the end of this little case that he mounted this external keyboard into. And then that DB25 matches up to a DB25 that's stuck on the side of the 400, which, and then on the inside of the 400, it's somehow wired to the existing keyboard matrix. And there's no picture of that internal stuff on the 400 at all. So again, this is just an article saying like, you know, look, this is possible. Here's some pictures and you can do it yourself. But after reading this article, you would have to essentially redo all the research for how to connect it on the inside of the 400 itself. So it's a cool idea, and it's something that I actually attempted to do. I wanted to turn my 800 into a sort of portable thing. So I got this old typewriter case, you know, with a handle and everything, and I wanted to sort of make an additional keyboard that would stick on the front of this typewriter case and then get all the hardware and kind of pull it out. I don't know why I ever thought I was going to do this, but that's just, you know, when you're a teenager and have some of these ideas, you think it's just going to be amazing. And I never got very far, but I do remember seeing this article in a magazine. So this is before, just prior to when I got my machine. I got my 1200 in, what, early 83, I guess. And I got I got an 800, probably an 84. But I remember going back, and I do remember seeing this article. I must have got it from the library or something. But I certainly remember this picture. And this might be one of the first articles that we've run across in this podcast that I actually remember reading. Because I remember these pictures for sure. And I don't mean it's like the first magazine that I picked up or read or something, but I mean, this is probably the earliest example of an article that I can recall reading that we've run across in the timeline of the podcast. Then we had the new product section before we hit the Outpost Atari, so I was scared for a minute that they were going to skip the Outpost Atari, but have no fear. They just put it in a different place. They mentioned a 64K RAM board from Mosaic Electronics, which is 48K of fixed contiguous RAM and four mappable RAM banks, which contain 4K each. It says any one of the mappable banks can be addressed at any particular time, and since they don't overlap the addresses occupied by ROM cartridges, they're always available. So it must map stuff to the hex C1000 page, is my guess. In the software section, they mentioned a few Atari things. Crypt of the Undead by Epics. Crazy Critters. And then they mentioned Cytron Masters, but it's probably the Apple version. I don't think the Atari version was released yet. Then we skip the legal form and the Apple cart, and we get to the Outpost Atari by John Anderson. And he talks about the 5200 that we covered in the episode 30 of the podcast, the first part of the 5200 special episode, where he says, for reasons somewhat difficult to fathom, the 5200 has made enough changes to ensure incompatibility with Atari computers. But there's a lot more stuff here that we didn't cover in that. One, he talks about self-modifying basic code, which uses the editor IO control block to take information from the screen as if it were from the keyboard. 
So if you poke 842 with a value 13, looking up on uh, mapping the Atari, it, it calls it return key mode, where it takes data from the screen as if it was been typed in by the user, and then you can add lines and stuff to your basic program. He notes you have to end it with continue to send control back to the program. He includes a simple example and then a more complicated example where you have a telephone address book. He has little capsule reviews of a bunch of books. One is Atari Games and Recreations by Herb Cole, Ted Kahn, Len, Lindsay, and Pat Cleland. It says it's an excellent starter for kids and novices with emphasis on fun programs the user can type in, play, and understand. There's Atari Sound and Graphics by Herb Moore, Judy Lower, and Bob Albrecht, saying that the authors paste the text so new concepts are introduced at a rate that can be absorbed. The Atari Assembler by Don Inman and Kurt Inman said the best basic machine language book available for Atari owners. It says you assume you have basic and the assembler editor cartridge. Also said assembly language is tough stuff, but the authors manage to keep things fresh with humor and good examples. There's games for the Atari by S. Roberts and W. Hoffaker. said good examples of player missile movement from basic and includes 10 example games to be typed in, unfortunately without much explanation. There's Picture This by David Thornburg. said a kid's introduction to graphics through Atari Pilot. Then there's Your Atari Computer by Lon Poole, and I had this one. It's a big purple book with a little Space invader thing on the cover, if my memory serves. It says, It may have taken two and a half years, but there's finally a manual available which thoroughly documents the rudiments, as well as a number of advanced topics concerning Atari personal computers. And this is the only one of these book reviews. It's the last one here, but it's the only one that has m- multiple paragraphs, saying the main body of the book deals with advanced basic programming. And then next, the book focuses on the goodies. Graphics and sound are given clear and thorough treatments. Advanced graphic techniques also, like character set animation, display lists, and player missile graphics are explained simply and thoroughly. And says your Atari computer should be packed with each and every unit Atari ships, saying no Atari owner should be without it. The Outpost Atari finishes up asking, what has become of Dave and Sandy Small? They are responsible for some of the most informative articles concerning the Atari that have ever appeared in any magazine. And it doesn't really answer that question except saying that Dave was unhappy with the speed of the A10 disk drive, and so he did something about it, designing his own. He said his system is aimed at professionals and is about seven times faster than an 810 drive. And it says if you like more information, contact him at Leading Edge on Spicewood Springs Road in Austin, Texas. Having lived in Austin, I know where that is. But yeah, it doesn't mention anything else about their absence from the magazine. And indeed, it does look they had been absent. Their last article was in October 82, and it looks like they won't return until 84. But they're clearly busy. We ran into some of the articles in the 5200 episode, I think, in the Joystick magazine. And we'll see some more of them in the next 5200 episode that we do. That's about it for this magazine, with elephant floppy disks on the back cover. So that's going to be it here for part one of December 1982 magazines. There weren't any amazing letters to the editor in these three magazines. So instead, Mike Whalen is here with an interesting story from the Dateline Tomorrow section of Creative Computing, where David All has a bunch of little vignettes. And this one's titled Video Games Found Harmful by Bahrain Doctor. I recently traveled around the world with stops in Tasmania for the 9th Australian Computer Conference, Singapore, Bahrain, and London for the Personal Computer World Show. Bahrain is an island in the Persian Gulf off the coast of Saudi Arabia. With the unrest in Lebanon, Bahrain has become the banking center of the Middle East. However, in many ways, it clings to ancient Arab traditions, with civilization on the island dating back to 2700 BC. The following is an excerpt of an article which appeared in a Bahrain newspaper September 3, 1982. Dr. Andrew McQuitty, a Briton who now works in Bahrain, has warned of the danger of epileptic fits caused by certain flashing sequences, even among people with little or no history of epilepsy. He cited the example 
quoted recently in the British Medical Journal of a 17-year-old girl who suffered a fit after a multicolored flashing sequence in a video game called Dark Warrior. Her father was a video game's maintenance engineer, and she usually played machines of different types for up to two hours a day. But only this particular sequence precipitated epilepsy. The girl had no previous history of fits or convulsions, nor did her family. Since the article was published, a number of other cases have been reported. A 17-year-old girl who had previously had one fit not related to video games suffered an attack while playing a game called Dune Buggy. It is well known in medical circles that flashing lights, for example strobes in a disco or even a flickering TV, can trigger epilepsy in people who are susceptible, said Dr. McQuitty, who is investigating the situation in Bahrain. The home video industry appears to be another cause, possibly in people who would not normally be prone to any form of epilepsy, he says. Bahrain is an island in the Persian Gulf. It's about 750 square kilometers, which is about a fifth the size of Rhode Island in area, or about the size of Devil's Lake in North Dakota, according to my fancy pants Wikipedia research. It has about 1.5 million people. The National Work Week used to be Saturday through Wednesday, so Thursday and Friday were the weekend. But they recently changed that in 2006 to Friday and Saturday being the weekend in order to have a weekend that shared one day with the rest of the world, according to Wikipedia. At the time of this article, women did not have the right to vote because, as you'll be shocked to find out, a conservative theocracy thought that universal suffrage didn't mean they had to include women. But there have been a couple constitutions, and in the second one, in 2002, women were allowed to vote and hold office. Although fewer than 10 women have ever held elected office in the lower house of parliament, in the 20-year history of this current constitutional system. Even atheists are allowed to live, so it's progressive compared to some theocracies. Anyway, thanks to Mike for finding that article. That'll be the end of this part one of the magazines for December 1982. I'll return with part two with such luminary titles as... The APX Catalog, The Atari Connection, Byte, Computers and Video Games, Micro, Softside, and introducing Page Six. And then part three, I'll do a game review. Not sure what I'm going to do yet. I have some ideas, but it'll be a surprise to you and me, I guess. So thanks as always to Steph Animal for the theme music. And if you were ever asked by Compute Magazine how you used your computer, but they didn't publish your story, email me about it at feedback at playermissile.com. Or if you've ever predicted fusion reactors were just 20 years away, tell me about it on Twitter. I'm at Atari 8-Bit Games. See you next time for part two.